Okay, before we jump into our passage for the sermon, the way we start every Sunday morning is we talk to our kids, our young ones, our youth, to tell them what the passage is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about, so that you're ready to guess, so that you're ready to join us as we make our way uh, through God's Word. So, kids, young ones, have you all heard, I'm sure you all have heard of it, like looks can be deceiving. You heard that before? Don't judge a book by its cover, that kind of thing. Uh, okay, let me ask you this. Uh, what is, oh, I'm going to tell you a story first. There, there's this new pizza place in town uh, where you can go, you order a pizza, and you can do what they call the Reaper Challenge. Anyone know what, uh, how, what's the, like, a Carolina Reaper? Anyone know what a Carolina Reaper is? Colby. It's like one of the hottest peppers in the world. You can do the Reaper Challenge at this place if you pay a little extra. If you pay a little extra at this pizza place, it's right down the street, they will, they will sneak in Carolina ghost pepper flakes into one of your slices. It's under the cheese. You don't know what slice it's in. So you, you, do the, you do the Reaper challenge. You take the pizza home, and they want you to record this and then send it to them. Uh, somebody takes it. You know, everybody takes a bite of their pizza. Okay, well, I got two really, really good close people friends uh, with me that, that went and did this just the other week. And they get home, and the husband takes a, you know, they're going through the pizza bites. They bite a couple. And this guy bites one and immediately is like, oh, just spits it out. And he's in pain. His wife doesn't believe it because it looks just like a normal pizza slice. She takes two big bites. And immediately it feels like her mouth has exploded. It's exploding. She runs to the fridge. She grabs a gallon of milk and she's just pouring it all over her mouth. And then she has to spend the rest of the night in bed. And she feels like she's going to die. Looks can be deceiving. Y'all, what's your favorite food, kids? What's your fave? Henry. Pizza. <laughs> you try the Reaper Challenge. Don't do it. Uh, what else? Spence, favorite food? French fries, pizza, French fries, blah. Pasta? Well, that's good. Pasta. Okay. Russell, were you going to say something? Pizza. We've got a lot of pizza lovers. Sanders? Catfish or sushi? John William, which favorite food? Sushi. That's awesome, Grace. Pizza, Luke. Tuna melts? Uh, but you know what? This is a perfect example. Y'all, there are some foods that, that look really good, but are not that good for it. Pizza? I'm sorry, y'all. It, like, if you live on pizza, it's not going to be the best thing for you. McDonald's, not the best thing for you. Donuts, if all you eat is donuts, they look so good, they taste so good, it's not going to go well for you. Ice cream? I know two people, one of them is in this room right now, I know two people who used to eat butter all the time. I know one guy who's, who I'm not going to name. I know one guy who used to eat butter by the stick. You just take a stick of butter and eat it. I know another girl who would take a tub of butter and eat it by the spoonful. If you do, it looks so good, it tastes so good. If you do that, you know, it's not going to be good. It's going to be really, really bad. And then there's food that looks bad, but it tastes good, like a tuna melt, like Luke's tuna melt. Uh, that stuff's good. Uh, or kiwi. Have you seen a kiwi? It's all brown and hairy on the outside, inside. This green fruit is the most magical fruit. It's even better than strawberries. Like kiwis, like looks bleh, but inside guacamole, no guacamole looks gross. Looks like vomit. It's gross and it's so good. 
Avocado, just the outside looks nasty. Uh, chili. Y'all know what chili looks like. It's so good. Yeah, the spicy kind, too, is the best. Uh, some people would say old, smelly blue cheese. I don't think that's one, but some people would say that. Okay, here's the point. Sometimes there are things, kids, that look good and turn out bad. Just because something looks good, just because something sounds good on the outside, doesn't mean it's good on the inside. This world will tell you, kids, a lot of stuff that they say, oh, this is really good, that turns out to be really bad. Things like, hey, live however you want to live. Hey, look out for number one. That's you. Hey, you need to just be the best you you can be because you're good enough just the way you are. That sounds good, but it's not good. That stuff is really, really bad. And then there's stuff, things that look bad that turn out to be the best. And who do you think I'm going to talk about right now? Jesus. This is thing of like, like the gospel, this good news about Jesus. Jesus may look weak. Jesus may seem like Jesus is not good for anything. And if you believe in him, you're going to be a big weirdo that nobody's going to like. But the truth is Jesus lived for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus was raised from the dead to save you from everything that is bad. And what we're going to learn today is the gospel of Jesus. It is true, and it is the only power that can save you from everything that is bad. And it can save anyone. So today what we're going to hear is have faith. Believe in Jesus. Kids, believe that Jesus is for you and believe that he is for anybody that wants him. Today we're in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This is where we've been this fall. You get into a gospel and it's normally assumed that the gospels, yeah, they just tell us the events like one after another, you know, just this chronological thing. We're just going through this bio of Jesus. But that's not, that's not true. Each gospel writer uh, decides uh, how to organize the gospel. All these are true events, but they organize them in such a way uh, to, uh, according to a storytelling technique to highlight uh, these awesome truths and realities of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. We're making our way through Mark's, so we're doing it according to his storytelling technique. And what we have seen so far is these conflict stories about Jesus, these parable stories of Jesus, these miracle stories of Jesus, kind of a week in the life of Jesus, typical Jesus stories. We've seen private stories between Jesus and his disciples. And in Mark chapter 10, uh, what what Mark does is he rehearses all of those again to, to really kind of zoom us out. He's starting to zoom us out to see the whole, the, all, all these elements coming together to form this mosaic of Jesus, to see Jesus for who he really, really is. And so what we're going to be in today is, you know, we're, we're going to pass over that, that recap just because we've been going through it quickly. We come to Mark 11 through 13. This is a section where Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and you could call these stories temple stories of Jesus because all these stories are about the temple, and most of them are happening in the temple. They could also be called, what we're calling them, destruction stories of Jesus. Because what Jesus talks about here over and over and over is the destruction of the temple. Please stand for the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written my house shall be called a house of, uh, is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your you, your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So uh, just a little context here. In the Old Testament, whenever the nation Israel got a good king, that, and that king wanted to fix Israel because, you know, they had rebelled, they had veered away from God, which is what they did. The king, the first thing that the king would do would fix the temple. You want to fix Israel, fix the temple. Whatever had gone wrong in the temple, the king would restore it and make it right. But good kings were really, really rare in Israel. And the bad kings continued to lead the people more and more and more and more into idolatry. So the prophets come, the Old Testament prophets come, and they tell the people that the temple is going to be destroyed by God himself. But God himself will come and build a new eternal temple. We didn't read this, but Mark 11 begins with what's called the triumphal entry. Uh, that's that thing where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, palm, everyone's waving palm branches. All these people are welcoming him, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. And they say, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. So the people get, when Jesus does this triumphal entry thing, the, pe the people there, they get that Jesus is claiming to be king, that here he comes. Uh, and like good kings of old, the first thing Jesus does as he claims to be king is head to the temple to fix it. Uh, that's, that's where we pick up in verse 11. Jesus enters the temple, and he looks around at everything. And that, that's that language of looking around at everything, that surveying language. He's taking it all in. He's surveying. He's making a judicial assessment of the temple. The next day starts with Jesus having an altercation with a fig tree. And then he heads straight for the temple. And as soon as he enters, he has an altercation with everyone there. And he starts kicking people out. This, this, this happens, you know, you think, man, he's having a bad day. This happens in the outer part of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. The biggest part of the temple, it's 35 acres big. It's, it's huge. And this is the only part of the temple Gentiles are allowed to come in and to pray to God. 
And fun fact, any one day during Passover week, you'd have 200,000 people coming into the temple. And you're kind of like, this thing of like, okay, wow, he skipped breakfast, thanks fig tree, and he's a little hangry. Uh, and, and, but, he's, he's, you know, but, but he's fixing the temple. He's fixing the temple like a good king, right? Because something is very wrong here. To get into the temple... Remember this? Y'all remember this? To get into the temple, you have to have two things. You have to have money for the tax, and you have to have an animal sacrifice. But the temple did not just accept any old currency to get in uh, for the tax. And so, uh, and there are people that are there from all over the world. They've come from all over the world, but the temple will only accept the Tyrian coin. And so, what they do is uh, they set up money changers at the temple so that you can exchange exchange your coin, exchange your money. Temple official, the, the officials, they know what they're doing. And so the exchange rate during the Passover was incredibly high. Hmm. And for the animal sacrifices, the temple officials knew that people didn't want to travel with animals all this distance, and it would be much more convenient for them to just buy their animals at the temple. And so what the officials did is they rented space uh, in the Gentile court to very savvy locals uh, to set up their tables to sell animals. Now, normally pigeons, these doves, that would have cost the poor two pennies for two doves, uh, uh, they now cost two weeks' wages. The temple officials and the religious leaders made millions in our current currency uh, every year. The temple's now big business. And Jesus was mad. You know, but how mad? How mad is Jesus? Do you remember Jesus' assessment? You remember he came in, he assessed the temple after his triumphal entry, and everyone, everyone has been in suspense for two days. Like, it's two days now. And now, here we get Jesus' assessment the morning after he had this raucous in the Gentile court. He, the next morning, Peter finds the fig tree, and it's withered to the roots, and Peter tells Jesus, what you cursed is dead. And some people read this, and they say, whoa, problems, problems here. Like problem number one, like Jesus performs a miracle that brings destruction. Every other miracle brought healing in life, so how is this a miracle? Problem number two, uh, the, the poor tree isn't even in season, but Jesus still kills it for not finding any fruit. It's not, it's not supposed to have any figs, Jesus, this time of year. Why not miraculously make it grow fruit? That would be cool. Uh, okay, first. Okay, good questions. Uh, problems with those problems, though. First, Jesus' miracles are the inbreaking of heaven. And we love heaven breaking in in the miracles that bring blessing and healing, you know, in the form of, you know, new life. But there are other intrusions of heaven, too. Intrusions of curse. And yeah, that sounds, that sounds weird at first to say that there are, there are intrusions of curse from heaven. But think, what, what, comes at the end, what comes at the end when Jesus comes back from heaven? It, judgment Day. What both blessing and curse intrusions point to is final judgment to come. That's true of Old Testament intrusions, New Testament intrusions. In the Old Testament, like think of the flood with Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues on Egypt with Moses, the conquest of the Canaanites by the Israelites, 
Those are all prophecies. Those are all prophetic intrusions into history, warning of God's final judgment to come. And we see, we see these intrusions of warning in the New Testament too, uh, like in the cursing of Ananias and Sapphira. If you don't know who those people are, it's Acts stuff. That's another sermon. Um, but that's, that's what that is. Uh, and this stuff right here, this cursing of the fig tree, the miracles, these intrusions of Jesus, they are symbols of the inbreaking of heaven and final judgment. This fig cursing is Jesus's assessment of the temple. The fig tree, it looks good. Mark makes that point that Jesus sees a fig tree in leaf, meaning all the leaves are on the fig tree. The fig tree looks healthy. Like the fig tree, the temple to the casual observer, it looks healthy. 200,000 people in the temple for Passover, tons of sacrifices, tons of activity. But like the fig tree, looks can be deceiving. Like that fig tree, Jesus' judgment is that Israel in the temple, it's fruitless. There's no genuine righteousness. There's no sincere love for God or for others. So Jesus' judgment is, it's done. In all of these chapters, Mark 11, 12, 13, Jesus announces, announces over and over and over the end of the old temple and the beginning of the new. Now, come to problem number three with this fig tree stuff. Uh, uh, it's Jesus' response to Peter when Peter sees that it's dead. Jesus, his immediate response is have faith. And then he starts talking about the kind of faith that can move mountains. Now, is Jesus saying, if you have enough faith, you will be able to do miracles? Or if you have enough faith, you'll be able to see miracles? No, that's not what he's saying. Israel throughout the Old Testament is called a fig tree. Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, Joel 1, Zechariah 3, that's just a few places. It's all over the Old Testament. Peter gets it. Peter gets that the fig tree is a familiar, familiar symbol for Israel, which is why Peter is so concerned when he sees, he sees this fig tree withered up after Jesus curses it. Peter is, sees the dead fig tree and he's freaked out. Peter is genuinely scared. Because you're going to, like, Israel is cursed? And Jesus tells him to have faith. This temple, this temple is not the temple that was built by Solomon. You remember the temple, uh, Solomon built that first temple? That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. This temple is the one that, that was built by Zerubbabel. <laughs> You're like, who are we talking about? Zerubbabel, uh, uh, one of the, the last kings who, who didn't get to wear a crown uh, of Israel. When Peter, okay, so when Peter hears about faith moving mountains, Peter also knows about this Old Testament prophecy about moving a mountain when Zerubbabel built this temple that they're now looking at. When God instructs, back in the Old Testament, when God instructs Zerubbabel, they have come out of Babylonian captivity. They are rebuilding this temple. Zerubbabel is building it. When God instructs Zerubbabel, his chosen ruler on earth, to build his temple, it comes with this promise. God promises Zerubbabel that the enemy of God's people, because they are surrounded by enemies, the enemy of God's people who want to stop the building of this temple, they will be defeated. 
the temple is going to be built. And the promise, it comes in the form of a challenge. So this is Old Testament. This is Zechariah. The challenge is this question in Zechariah 4, 7. It says this. This is the prophecy. God says, who are you, O great mountain? As in God is talking to this figure, this great mountain. is in like, you think you can stop this temple from being built? And the mountain, we know from the, this next passage in Zechariah, the mountain is uh, the enemies of God's people. It's the hostile nations to Israel. So you think Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the enemies to come, Greece, Rome. And so, so what is God's promise to his people there in the Old Testament? Just the rest of that same verse says, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And that's echoing an earlier Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 41, 15, which says the Redeemer of Israel shall, quote, thresh the mountains and crush them and shall make the hills like dust. The promise is that this temple will be rebuilt in the face of these obstacles because God's enemies will be defeated. So when Jesus says to Peter, verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Peter gets that when Jesus says, this mountain right here, you tell it to be thrown into the sea, he gets that he's talking about the temple mount. He's talking about the mountain where the temple is. Israel has become like the nations in rejecting God. They don't worship him. You see it most clearly in their rejection of the Son of God. And the faithful people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, the faithful people who are being persecuted by their own leaders, they can look at this old temple now and they can pray for it to be done and for God to build his new eternal temple and the new king says, it will be done. The challenge, that challenge to Peter to have faith in the impossible, it, it echoes this challenge that comes right at, all this is so tied to Zechariah chapter 4. It, it, that, it, when, when Jesus says to Peter, have faith, faith in the impossible, it's echoing the challenge that comes right after the Zechariah 4 challenge where God challenges God's enemies, the mountain. Zechariah 4.10 says this, who has despised the day of small things? As in don't, don't despise the day of small things. Like Jesus' challenge to Peter, that is a challenge to God's people to have faith in the impossible. God's people, they had been told, this is Old Testament, they'd come out of exile. God's people had been told after returning from exile to Jerusalem that they would finally have a king in the line of David sit on the throne in Jerusalem. God told them that. And then Persia. Persia will not allow Zerubbabel to claim the throne. Okay, and then when the Persians get beat and they're displaced by the Greeks, it's the Greeks who rule the world and they rule Israel. Okay, and then when the Greeks get beat and they're displaced by the Romans, it's the Romans who rule the world, including Israel. And, and so from the end of the Old Testament, from Zechariah for the next 500 years, because Zechariah is at the end of the Old Testament, for the next 500 years, Till the New Testament, till this point right here, God's people are under the dom domination of a foreign power. Where is their kingdom? And the challenge now to Peter, how will God's kingdom be established? Like Peter's saying, like, how will God's kingdom be established with a, with a small group of insignificant, poor, ragtag, occupied people? 
Like, why not despise the day of small things? Let's just go with this temple. Make it bigger. Don't destroy it. Jesus says, have faith in God and pray for the impossible. The first thing the disciples are thinking when Jesus tells them to want this temple to be destroyed like the fig tree hurled into the sea, their first thought is, you're going to destroy our beloved temple? What's going to replace it is more glorious? What about our kingdom? And what they don't understand yet is that Jesus is saying, who's going to be the new temple? You. Like you. God is going to live inside of you, and you are going to be the new temple, the church. It's you here, you are the temple. You are the kingdom of God on earth. And they'll have to remember uh, the challenge of old, even from the Old Testament, don't despise the day of small things. They're going to have to remember that uh, and have faith and not despise the day of small things. Because like the Old Testament ragtag group building the temple, the disciples, they're, they're, look at them, they're weak, they're poor, they're insignificant. And look, y'all, us too. This thing is for us too of like, have faith because the church, you may, you know, I'm not saying this about you individually. You may not look weak. You may look very super successful and awesome in every way. But the church, us together, the church will always look weak to the world. If we deny who we are and we try to be something that we are not, we expose a lack of faith in God who uses weak things that are despised by the world to build his temple. Looks can be deceiving. Sometimes that's a good thing. As in we in the church, we stake our claim simply to the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. And we say that that's enough. And that will take faith because what we see and what we hear every day is another message. That the main thing, uh, this, I'm getting this from another pastor friend, uh, says, so what he says, the main thing you're here to do, what the world tells us is the main thing you're here to do is to have a designer life. Be the healthiest you can be. Be the most beautiful you, you can be. Be the most successful you you can be financially, socially, vocationally, emotionally. Be the best version of you you can be. And the reality is we are moving toward death. And what's wrong with us cannot be fixed with our programs or our life management or with our goals. And what's wrong with us, it's unseen. And Jesus says, have faith in God that he can take care of it the way he says he'll take care of it. What the disciples also don't understand yet is when he tells them to want this temple to be destroyed like the fig tree hurled into the sea, he's telling them to pray for salvation. And it's this question to us. Are you, are we convicted of the reality that you can't, this reality that you can't see with your eyes, things that you cannot prove in a lab, things that you can't prove on a spreadsheet? If you have faith, you can ask God to do the impossible. Praying for small things is awesome. It's like, thanks for this meal. Thanks for this awesome day and, and weather. That is great. And God also tells us to pray for big things like, Lord, I don't know how in the world you would save this friend, this family member, this coworker, 
but please do it. Lord, I don't know how you're going to provide for me to get me through this day, this season, when it is all so overwhelming. But please do it. It looks impossible, but you are my God. You are my Father. I have a Lord. I have a Savior, and you know everything I need. And yeah, you're at work in my life. Please do it. And so, and so no one is tempted to confuse the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus is explicit here that this faith is all of grace. And because you have been saved by grace, you are supposed to forgive others who wrong you. That this faith prays for the impossible, like praying for your enemies. Because Jesus has grace for them too. This fig tree, it's, it's not only a parable, a miracle about the destruction of the old temple. It's, it's this parable miracle about what Jesus himself is about to do. This all happens on the heels of his triumphal entry. All of this, y'all, looks can be deceiving. Soon he's going to be sold out and betrayed by one of his disciples. Roman soldiers arrest him. His other friends abandon him. One friend denies him three times. The Jewish religious authorities and high priests try him put him on trial in the middle of the night illegally, and they convict him on false charges from false witnesses. The Jewish king Herod mocks him. The Roman governor Pilate makes a mockery of Roman justice and has him tortured. And then he leaves it to the same people who days earlier cried out, Hosanna. They're now yelling, crucify him. Because now they see Jesus as weak. They despise the day of small things. And so Rome does. They parade him through the streets. They strip him naked. And at the end, Jesus does not ascend a throne. He ascends a cross. And Jesus is the true temple. In that in Jesus, God literally, truly dwells on earth with his people. And the miracle of the cross is Jesus takes the destruction that we deserve in order to unite us to himself and make us the new temple. Bless us with his presence by dwelling in us. The miracle of the cross is that Jesus, the true temple, is destroyed for us. Looks can be deceiving, and sometimes that's a good thing. And with it, my, my RUF buddy, Dan Smith, sent me this story. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh of the 19th century, Vincent Van Gogh, uh, was one of the most important and popular artists in the world. It's just, that's science. Um, just this summer, art conservators at the uh, National Galleries of Scotland they were preparing his painting, uh, Head of a Peasant Woman, for exhibition. It's just, it's just this painting of the, the head of this old peasant woman. And uh, they're preparing it for exhibition, and they discover a hidden self-portrait of Van Gogh behind it. And it's covered by layers of glue and cardboard, and it's been, it's been hidden for more than a century now. And the x-ray images can now be publicly seen. You can, if you want to go over there and see this, you can go now see this. You can look through an x-ray machine uh, that's uh, this specially crafted light box, and you can see it. And the x-ray image shows a bearded Van Gogh in a brimmed hat with a neckerchief loosely tied at the throat. But he fixes his eyes on the viewer with this intense and inescapable stare. Behind something as weak and plain and seemingly unimpressive as a peasant woman, the creator himself is staring at you. Can you see him? 
do you see in the destruction of this seemingly weak king who is the true temple, the mystery of salvation now revealed to all peoples? The supreme intrusion of heaven is not just a symbol, but the real thing of heaven breaking into our reality is Jesus himself. And Jesus' death on the cross was the first act of final judgment. As in, at the cross, you and I experience final judgment through our faith in Jesus as he bears our sins on the cross. And the resurrection of Jesus, it is an intrusion of heaven breaking into our reality before the final resurrection of all mankind. But like, like the cross, the resurrection is not a symbolic intrusion. It is that final reality. It is the beginning of final consummation. The true triumphal entry, loved ones, was Jesus' ascension into heaven following his death and his resurrection, ascending into, his he- ascending into heaven, ascending to his heavenly throne. And the good news is that triumphal entry has just begun. The triumphal entry is not done. We await our king's triumphal return so that he finishes what he started, and he leads us in that triumphal procession of entry into his heavenly kingdom to be with our heavenly king. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks for the gospel. We, we, we do. We say right now, here, it's enough. Uh, the glories of our, of our God and King who came and did for us what we, what we can't do. We talk about him all the time, and we can't see him yet, but we know it's true by faith that he's done for us, that he's won our salvation, that he's brought us to himself, that you have made us your new temple. Father, we, we long for that day when Jesus comes back and all of that is revealed. Uh, to be with you in heaven forever. Uh, we, we pray that you would preserve us in this faith and that you would help us to help each other preserve in this faith in your gospel. In Christ's name, amen.